So it's wonderful to be with you this semester. I'll get to see you a couple more times. I'm just going to dive right in. I'm grateful for the fact that I only have 12 verses to cover instead of five chapters of Exodus or the whole book of Leviticus. So, so in this passage, Paul mentions the third major theme that he's going to cover in this letter to his, his favorite church, the theme of, of unity. At this point in the letter, he's already used joy and rejoice once each. That's twice of the 16 times he's going to use that in the letter. So he prays for them with joy, if you remember, and then he rejoices even though he's sitting in prison because the gospel is continuing to go forth. He's also pointed out that the Philippians are participating with him in the gospel and that they are partakers with him of grace. That's another major theme, a second major theme. The Philippians had been very concerned for Paul when they heard that he was in prison. We're pretty sure that he was in Rome, like at the end of Acts. And so to find out word about him, they sent Epaphroditus with gifts and no doubt a letter. And so then in the first section we covered, he prayed for them. And then in the section we covered last week, He talked about his experience in prison and that he's continuing to rejoice because the gospel of the kingdom is going forth. And then in this next section, he's going to reflect on the future. And he's still going to do that with rejoicing. Yes, and I will rejoice. Let me dive right in and read. Yes, if you want to follow with me, by the way, I'm going to be in the word and we're going to flip to a couple of other places. Yes, and I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but, with, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul is giving us a deep insight into his heart here about how he's handling his circumstances, whether he's going to live or die. We're seeing his heart. I learned from Gordon Fee's commentary that this sentence with these two clauses is one of the most complicated in all of Paul's corpus. Thank you. (laughs) And it's filled with Old Testament. We We hear it just coming out of him, even though he hasn't really quoted That's debatable, but it's filled with Old Testament, so we get to see that and hear that. Uh, I am using the New American Standard to study, and so I put on your outline the order that the New American Standard uses, which is the Greek uh, original word order, too. So he actually first says in the Greek, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. This, what what does this refer to? This would be... This whole situation, all of these circumstances that are before me here, my present circumstances, this whole affair. Deliverance is the word translated here in the English, but that's a little unfortunate. It's the same word that's used later in 28, verse 28, not frightened in anything by your opponents, clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. It's the same word, soteria in Greek, same word, salvation. 
And this is actually a direct quote from the Greek version of Job 13.16. So if you want to, turn there with me. I'll read it so that you can see and so that you can hear Job's heart as well. Starting at verse 13, 13, chapter 13, verse 13. Let me have silence and I will speak. And let come on me what may. What should I take my flesh? Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Keep listening to my words and let my declaration be in your ears. Behold, I have prepared my case and I know that I shall be in the right. So this is, this is Paul identifying himself with the sufferer, with the poor man uh, in the Hebrew scriptures. And this salvation is also connected with vindication here. We're going to see that in, in, just a, in just a few minutes. So how does Paul expect this to happen? through their prayers and the spirit of Christ in him. Here's a reminder that they are participating in God's mission together. Peter O'Brien in, in his commentary says, the supply of the spirit is the answer to his friend's prayer, the final result of which is Paul's vindication. Paul knows that he needs those prayers. This is an apostle, hand-chosen by Jesus himself quite dramatically. And his prayers are effectual. But he knows he needs their prayers, and they need to experience praying for him. They're to pray for the Holy Spirit, to fill him and embolden him. And um, that's that's what he's teaching them here. We can all pray for ourselves individually, too, and they can be effectual. But how much greater is it when we pray together about something? We're all in this together. Prayer, y'all, is our greatest weapon against the evil realm that is fighting so desperately against us. And it's also our way to intimacy with God and to transformation. So glad that Brian finally got to that one uh, last, last week. God wants us to pray because he wants us involved in his work. All right, verse 20 then. Paul has this hope-filled expectation that he will magnify and honor Jesus with a frank and bold defense of the gospel before the Roman Roman tribunal because of the Holy Spirit's presence with him. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He already told this to the Romans. So he's getting a chance now to demonstrate his conviction before Caesar. Whether he lives or dies as a result of his testimony, Jesus will be honored and Paul will be vindicated as he has testified to to, uh, 
Jesus's work. We can't control our circumstances. Paul knew he couldn't control his circumstances, but we can control how we respond to them. And he understands the the importance of receiving things well. Let's now look at this other uh, part of the the Old Testament that, that links the magnifying and the poor man and the vindication together. That would be Psalm 34, 6, 3 to 6, among many others. I've just picked this one. Psalm 34, 3 to 6. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. So you can see in this wonderful sentence all all that's going on in Paul's thinking and his heart. I want to read you um, Gordon Fee's paraphrase of this sentence so that you can really see the flow, hear the flow of it. This is his paraphrase. This whole affair will turn out to my ultimate salvation and present vindication when, through your prayers and the supply of the Spirit of Christ, my earnest expectation and hope are realized at my trial. And not only am I not brought to shame, But in a very open or bold way, Christ is magnified in every way, whether I am given life or sentenced to death. By the way, we have the same Holy Spirit in us, empowering us to trust and obey God, to magnify his name as Paul did. Those of us who go way back together from Fort Worth Prez might remember how Amy Kitchell used to say, Paul didn't get the varsity Holy Spirit and we got the JV one. I've always remembered that because it was so catchy. I've got the same Holy Spirit in me, enabling me, empowering me, transforming me, the very same. Next section. Starting verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. I don't know why, but when I was pondering this this time, Hamlet's to be or not to be soliloquy came into my mind. And so I wanted to play it for you, but it's just too complicated to set up in here. So it'll be in the link. So you can see Kenneth Branagh's version. And, um, and then I'll get to play it for the ladies next week uh, at, in, in the evening. Hamlet is having an existential crisis. Is it better to live or die? Neither seems like a great option to him. Life is full of the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Death is the undiscovered country from whose born no travelers return. Suicide isn't an option because that's a sin. To sleep, perchance to dream. There's the rub. The Apostle Paul isn't having an existential crisis like this even though he can't be certain whether he's going to live or die, 
He's giving us deep insight into his heart. And I see there, I sense there, peace, profound peace. To live is Christ. Because of his union with Christ, both living and dying are good options to Paul. Hamlet's missing out. Paul is so in love with Jesus that living for him to continue his work or dying for him to be with him is great as well. One of the first verses I memorized years back when I started memorizing scripture in college was Galatians 2.20, which Paul wrote 15 to 20 years back, depending on when exactly this was written. If it was Rome, it was early 60s probably. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. What does that, what does that mean, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me? To live is Christ. What does that, what does that mean? I've pondered it for decades now. And I still have a long way to go in figuring it out. But what I think it means is that Paul's life was wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, Christ-centered. Everything he thinks, says, and does is oriented to his relationship with Jesus. I thought of um, the exercises of Ignatius of Loyola, which... I had gone through with my spiritual director just a few years back. He speaks of he speaks of being indifferent to or unattached to outcomes of circumstances. That our our will must be completely subsumed under God's will every day. That's the way Jesus lived. We especially see that in the Garden of Gethsemane in his prayer. Oh, Father, remove this cup. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And then it's on display in Paul here. Whether I'm released or whether I die. It's good. It's it's God's will. So whether I'm rich or poor, whether I'm healthy or sick, whether happily married or not, whether well-educated or not, whether have children or not, it doesn't matter. Ignatius says, our one dominating desire and fundamental choice must be to live in the loving presence and wisdom of Christ our Savior. How can a fallen human being get there? Jesus wasn't fallen. Paul was. It's hard to believe that sometimes, right? But he was, and so, so are we. How can we get to that point like where, where Paul was? Practices. Practices. Public worship is great. I've participated my entire life. Reading the Word is great. I've been reading it since I knew how to read. Offering up petitions to God for ourselves and others, great. Giving, serving, all wonderful. 
But what has changed me more than anything else in the 40 years that I've been a Christian are two in particular. Number one, learning to sit in silence with God and listen. Let him do the talking to my soul. Because my head is just like nonstop, if you can imagine. (laughs) Nonstop. So sitting in silence with God has transformed me. And if you'd like to learn to practice that one, I would be happy to guide you into what I've, what I've learned. The other is meditating on the Word, which I really learned to do and did intensively when I walked through these Ignatian exercises, particularly on the Gospels, as you meditate on, on Jesus and His words and, and work. So Paul doesn't go into details about how he cultivated his own relationship with Jesus. But I bet it's something like this. These are ancient practices that the ancient fathers and mothers uh, passed on, those who knew the apostles and then their disciples. I still have a long way to go, but I'm on the path. That's what God wants for all of us. Stay on the path to maturity, sisters. Do what it takes. And by the power of the Spirit within, that work will be completed by the time Jesus returns. All right, next, in that, that next section, Paul, well, no, still, here, he's reflecting on his desires. So release means that further progress can be made in spreading the gospel, people coming into the kingdom, growing to maturity. And Paul's happy with that. Nevertheless, God hasn't revealed to him whether he'll live or die, so he doesn't know what to settle on. That's what's meant by that, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. It hasn't been revealed to him. He wants most to be with Jesus. That's what his desire is, to die and be with Jesus, because being in Jesus' presence is far better than any other option. Yet, it's better for the Philippians and for the other churches that Paul has founded if he's released and if he's, he can continue the work that God has called him to do. Paul knows that in the end, it's all in God's control. All right, picking up now with 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Now, Paul is expressing confidence that he will be released. Where does this confidence come from? I think we can infer here that Paul knows God's heart. God wants this earth to be filled with the fame of his great name. He wants it to be filled with his presence. He wants the nations to be brought back into his kingdom. And so Paul is confident, though he can't be certain, he's confident knowing God's heart that he will be released. And then that will give the Philippians cause for great joy and to glory in God for answering their prayers to bring their precious Paul back to them to continue the work. 
I couldn't help but think, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our constant prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So with that, Paul's reflection is complete. And then he turns to exhort his friends. Only let your manner, verse 27, of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Rector William Taylor in his little commentary on Philippians says this is the key thesis of the letter. All right, let's go verse by verse here. That word only, the word that's translated only, it means something like this is one of the most important things that I have to say to you. So listen up. And then he goes on, let your manner of life, let your manner of life. That's one word sort of in Greek. And it's the same word that's used later in 320 about living as citizens. So it's a, it's a word that we get like politics and polis city from. Let your manner of life. Now elsewhere, for example, in, in Ephesians, Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling in the gospel. And other times he may say, live worthily. But this place he chose this political word, live as citizens. Why do you think that is? Well, because he knew where he was. Or, well, he knew where he, the people were that he was writing to, Philippi, a very proud Roman colony. These people were proud of living where they lived, and he knew it would resonate with them and call up you know, thoughts and reflections and musings. You know, we have something of an idea of what that might be like. We're proud American citizens, most of us, I hope. And, you know, a lot of the world is, is envious of, of what we have here, and a lot of them try to come so that they can have a flourishing, abundant life that they may be missing out on. When I was in uh, Ukraine, some, some of you know, maybe most of you know, I served for two years with Mission to the World in Ukraine. And um, because I was there for, for two years, it, I had visited Russia before and, and noticed this, but it, it happened all the time in Ukraine. And not just to me, but to my colleagues. I would walk down the street, whether dressed up, in sweats, makeup, no makeup, and people were always staring at me. And one day, I finally asked a Ukrainian friend, why does everybody stare at me? She said, Lisa, because they can tell you're an American. Americans have this aura, this confidence, this joy, something that we project. And people who have no clue what it's like see it. 
And Paul knew that about these people. And so he's getting them to connect their Roman citizenship with their citizenship in the kingdom. Because the kingdom citizenship is a much more significant and important citizenship. It takes earthly, uh, takes precedence over any earthly citizenship. What does that look like to live worthy of a citizen of the kingdom? Well, he gives us three things, standing firm in unity and striving together to be faithful to the gospel. Unity is crucial to our witness to the world. Disunity is what undid Adam and Eve. They didn't face the evil realm's temptation with unity. Eve faced the serpent on her own. Adam was standing right there and said nothing. He just caved when she gave him, gave him the fruit. A house divided against itself cannot stand, Jesus said. If they had put up a united front, we might not be in this mess. Although I'm sure the evil realm would have tried again, and it might have happened another way. And that serpent, that, that spiritual being that, that Eve encountered, that was just the first of a couple of uh, rebellions among the spiritual realm against God. Disunity is a grievous sin because it goes against the unity found in the triune Godhead. All God's creatures, spiritual and earthly, are supposed to live in unity and shalom with one another. And because of this rupture, God himself became flesh. And through his suffering and exaltation has begun to bring all things, things in heaven and things on earth, as Paul writes in Colossians, back together. It started. It's not finished yet, but it's coming. It's coming. Second way to live as citizens is to face opponents with courage. There's no need to fear opponents of the gospel. Whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. When we stand courageously in honor of Jesus for his honor, our opponents receive a clear sign that they're on the wrong side. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame and they set their minds on earthly things. We, however, are on the right side because God has granted us salvation. He has and will vindicate us because we honor Christ. Third way he mentions here to honor the citizenship of the kingdom is to suffer for Jesus' sake, like Paul. So not only is our salvation a gracious gift from God, but so is suffering, like Jesus. Do you think of suffering as a gift? That's hard. That's a hard one. But you know what? I've, I've not learned a whole bunch, I don't think, and haven't advanced in my faith when life is good. My worst decade of life was my 30s. It was horrible. Lost a baby, lost a marriage. But when I reflected on that later, like in my 40s after I'd been through it, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't change it because it changed me. It changed me. 
A servant is not greater than his master. And all along in the story of the Hebrew Bible, we've seen a suffering servant, a righteous sufferer that points to one that was to come to bring God's people back into his family. If Jesus suffered, we will suffer. Some worse than others, to be sure. We have brothers and sisters elsewhere in the world, even today. The 20th century was one of the worst in history for Christians. Paul has endured suffering for Jesus. The Philippians have seen it and have experienced some themselves, and they should expect more of it, he's saying. And so he's asking them to live worthily, clean like he's doing. That means being light and salt in the fallen, broken world that desperately needs it. On the back of your handout, I included two quotes from Michael Goheen's book, A Light to the Nations. First, what is the church? Who are we? We are the manifestation of the risen Christ on earth. Do you believe that? Do you know that? Do you feel that? And then what is our task? Our task as a church is to be God's temple so filled with his presence that we expand and fill the earth with that glorious presence until God finally accomplishes this goal completely at the end of time. This is our common unified mission. May we unify around this goal. This unity, this courage, this willingness to suffer is only possible as we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. In the next chapter, Paul magnificently describes the humility of our Lord Jesus that he is calling the Philippians and us to imitate. And that's what we'll take up next week. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for these glorious words. Thank you for these great encouragements to persevere, to cling to Jesus when we are struggling or suffering because there's no reason to be ashamed. The gospel is powerful for salvation. And it is your will that that gospel goes forth through us to the ends of the earth. Oh, by your spirit, keep us faithful. Please bless these ladies and their discussions as they get together here in the next few minutes. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.